Good afternoon and welcome to Midday. I'm Tom Hall. In November, Donald Trump announced his third candidacy for president amid growing calls from some Republicans to move past Trump and onto a new generation of leaders. If that happens, and we do move into a post-Trump era, will Maryland Governor Larry Hogan impress Republicans as a model for how the GOP can attract a diverse coalition of support? My guest today on this encore edition of Midday explores that hypothesis in a new book by taking a close look at Hogan's rise in Maryland politics. Dr. Malia Cromer is the director of the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics at Goucher College. She examines how Hogan, a Republican in a deeply Democratic state, won two elections and, over two terms, enjoyed some of the highest approval ratings of any governor in the country. It's called Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won Where Republicans Lose and Lessons for a Future GOP. Malia Cromer joined me in Studio A. Hey, Malia. Always good to see you. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on this book. I really like this book a lot. I learned a lot about a fascinating politician. I mean, Larry Hogan impresses me, has always impressed me as one of the most adroit political figures uh, in the scene today. Um, Did you have cooperation from him for this book? I did. The governor actually agreed uh, to sit down with me. Um, We sat down... uh, uh, for about two and a half hours and talked the whole way through from 2014 up into that 2018 uh, re-election bid. The book, I think anybody who reads it will notice there's, it's light on the last couple years because there is a deadline for submitting a book. And so it really ends effectively after he wins re-election in 2018. And there's just a little bit after that. What are... In sort of the 30,000-foot view, the reasons, as you see them, for his amazing popularity. We are in a state that is two-to-one Democrat to Republican. In the city of Baltimore, it's nine-to-one. I mean, there are areas of the state that are just overwhelmingly Democratic when it comes to voter registration. But... uh, and tribal voting is a thing. I mean, people check the the D or the R, you know, by habit in a lot of ways. But he was able to overcome that not once but twice. Yeah, I think that is probably the central question of the book is how do you win over Democratic voters if you're a Republican, particularly in a hyper-polarized political era? Um, I think for Hogan, I think it's looking at the electorate, not just so much with Democrats and Republicans or taking but taking more of an ideological view. So Maryland has a lot of moderates, uh, a lot of folks who identify as a moderate among Democrats as well um, as well as independents. And so when you start to piece together sort of conservative Democrats and moderate Democrats, if you can effectively message towards those individuals and those individuals are concerned about taxes, um, taxes and government spending and those types of things. He was able, I think, to zero in on those voters who make up a large uh, portion of the Democratic base and able to pull them sort of hit to his side. Uh, That, to me, is like the secret behind um, Hogan's positioning. But the kind of what has enabled him to do that is the effective messaging over the last sort of from 2014 to 2018. Anybody who knows Hogan's press shop, who knows the communication folks that have surrounded him throughout his time in office, know that they can effectively message um, uh, Governor Hogan's sort of political positions. It's messaging, and you talk a lot about about the the, the communications shop uh, of the Hogan administrations, and we'll talk about that as well. I've, of course, had some, you know, interactions with them myself. Um, 
but it's also, it seems to me, it's kind of a persona thing. I mean, he's got this image of a nice guy. He he cultivated this image. Oh, I'm not a politician. Uh, I'm a small businessman. Um, he's been effective in, you know, presenting himself as a as a relatable person. Um, how much of that is branding and how much of that is real? I mean, how small is his business, the Hogan Companies, this development business that he had, you know, well before he got into politics? I, it's not it's not teeny, is it? I, I think it depends on where your comparison point is. Is it is it it's small compared to Amazon, but it's not exactly a mom and pop bagel shop either. So Hogan Companies is quite a large development uh, development company. They've done a lot of mil- millions of dollars of business here in the state. So in that aspect, no, like his business is not a quote unquote small business. Because you you describe it as a two billion dollar oh, right. a two billion dollar business. That is not teeny. No, that's a, and I got that directly from the website of Hogan Companies. Um, so. No, so a small business owner, it just depends on how you want to frame small business in comparison to to you know Amazon or to the the mom and pop uh, business. So I think um, yes. Yeah, so the so the effective messaging does it actually match the person who he is? I think that he's a natural extrovert, and so on the campaign trail, he has an ability. And people have saw what who've watched him have noticed this as well. The retail politics are there. He's able to interact with people, to meet and greet, to backslap, to do that with with um, a lot of ease. And people do like that. They respond to politicians who are good at retail politics. Um, and he's obviously not the only person in Maryland politics we can point to. Uh, Martin O'Malley was good at retail politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wes Moore, uh, the governor-elect, is absolutely good at retail politics. So that's part of, I think, that persona has really helped him out. He garnered some 30% of Democratic voters, uh, I guess, in both elections. And uh, black voters, uh, even though he's, you know, his relationship with uh, the leadership of Baltimore City has never been very good, uh, going across two or three mayors, et cetera. Um, how does he do that? How, how, would, how it, whatever his message is, how is that relating um, to, to people who, just generally speaking, don't warm up to Republicans? And one of the things that struck me is I had uh, Senator Van Hollen on the show yesterday. And he ran against a guy named Chris Chafee, who has run for the past five cycles. He runs for Congress. He runs for Senate. He had no campaign. I mean, he didn't really, he was not a serious candidate as a Republican running for Senate in in any normal metric. Um, he did not do events. He didn't do media. He, he just didn't do anything. He got 666,834 votes. That's more than Dan Cox got. So this is a, a virtually unknown Republican candidate, but people went into the voting booth uh, and saw R and checked the box. Mm-hmm. So Larry Hogan overcame that not once but twice. That's a, an astonishing accomplishment. What is a, is it, do you think, about the message or about the person that r- so many Democrats warmed up to? Um, I would argue that it's both, um, but I will say that first election cycle that a lot of folks did, um, I think, that coming out of the O'Malley years, um, the, the former governor had to make a lot of really tough decisions uh, do, during the economic downturn. So there was a rate, um, taxes and fees were raised, and uh, Larry Hogan, through Change Maryland, really diligently kind of followed every single small tax and fee increase, started adding it up, and then created or started talking about the stormwater remediation uh, fee as a rain tax. So the rain tax would not have had the same messaging magic if it was just 
a standalone. But it was part of this sort of larger anti-tax sediment that was happening in 2014. And Hogan was able to really position himself and capitalize on that. And it's the same sort of conservative messaging that he was able to, through the next couple years and into 2018, revisit that sort of messaging. Um, And this time he was able to position himself as somebody who was at least standing against the Democratic majority um, in the General Assembly and then against Ben Jealous, who was a a, the Democratic nominee, who was quite progressive, standing against sort of a a, an agenda that would perhaps raise your taxes. Now, we know we can argue uh, on policy whether that would be true or not. But this is a book about politics. And uh, his that was his position from 2014 and 2018 was somebody who is going to at least give some economic relief to uh, Marylanders. And that message, by the way, isn't a message that just uh, appeals to white people. It also uh, uh, appeals across the racial spectrum. The book is called Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won Where Republicans Lose and Lessons for a Future GOP. The author is my guest, Malia Cromer. She is a pollster and a political scientist on the faculty of Goucher College. She runs the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics at Goucher College, formed 10 years ago. We have an email from Kathleen who says, I hope the topic of Mr. Hogan's two very weak opponents in the gubernatorial elections is mentioned. Had the Democrats not formed their usual circular firing squad and put up better opponents, Hogan would not have won. So you write a lot about the Jealous campaign and about the Anthony Brown campaign in 2014. Um, How do you assess um, Mr. Hogan's not only, you know, strategy, but luck? Well, I am. One of the things I have often pushed back about um, over the last couple of years was this idea that he's some sort of accidental governor, that um, the only reason that Larry Hogan was governor for these two terms is because he faced weak opponents. And although I can certainly point to faults in both Anthony Brown's campaign um, as well as Ben Jealous's campaign, um, I would not argue that either one of these men in themselves, like if you look at their building blocks and their sort of credentials coming in, were inherently weak opponents. Um, I do think, however, that a lot of folks, at least in 2014, underestimated Hogan's political acumen and they underestimated his his widespread appeal and particularly his uh, appeal among conservative Democrats and moderate Democrats who, again, make up a large chunk of the Democratic Party. I think oftentimes people think of Maryland and they look at it and they say it's a blue state and they automatically conflate it with being a progressive state. It's just not. And that type of messaging appealing to that moderate part of the electorate um, and Hogan's ability, and I talk about this in a book, the book a little bit, his ability to not um, to discern sort of where people are at, but also what people care about um, is probably one of his big political superpowers. Now, he does that through a lot of scientific polling, but it's also something that m- many of his staffers that I spoke to say that it's like an inherent sort of political skill. But back to the idea, it's like I'm not arguing, of course, that there wasn't mistakes weren't made between Brown and, and Jealous. What I'm arguing is that it w- that they could have made mistakes, but against an opponent like perhaps like Dan Cox, it wouldn't have mattered. So having a, a, a Republican who's able to capitalize on it was really important. And he was a Republican who was able to capitalize on it. Yeah, my recollection in 2014 with the Brown campaign was uh, there were ads and stuff that tried to paint Larry Hogan as Darth Vader. He was just this this horrid person. And I think what happened is that people met Larry Hogan and they said, no, he's not a terrible person. He's a lovely man. So the fundamental flaw, I think, with those ads, there was the, the ads about gun, the gun yeah, control ads. Yeah, there were ad, guns on the playground. I remember that. And the yeah. abortion ad. Where the two, um, and they use uh, comments that uh, 
uh, Hogan had made sort of, I think it was like 20 something plus years ago. It gave uh, gave him the opportunity. So when you attack somebody in a campaign, uh, the press will give the person you're attacking the opportunity to, to respond. And so every time an attack ad came out, it gave the uh, the then candidate, now governor, the opportunity to contest what's being said um, and drive more attention to him. And that's, I think, what he effectively did in um, in 2014. Now, 2018, uh, the RGA came in um, the second that Jealous um, was nominated, and they effectively framed him or helped the Hogan campaign frame him as a sort of a reckless ideologue. And that is the sort of messaging Hogan's campaign was able to stay positive through most of 2018 and sort of message on his record. Whereas the RGA, um, the the Republican Governors Association, came in and were able to really go negative on him early. Yeah, and that's, of course, what happened with the Democratic Governors Association in this last cycle with Wes Moore defining Dan Cox as a, uh, you know, too extreme for Maryland, et cetera, uh, which helped him probably win the nomination, you know, the the Republican primary. Um, So, you know, what goes around comes around. Um, Political labels are tough. You know, liberal, conservative, um, progressive, you know, extremist, etc. But the, the, the two labels that you talk about in the book are moderate and conservative. Is Larry Hogan a moderate? You talk about the moderate Democrats that he appealed to. Um, does he fit the description of a moderate? Does he fit the description of a, a conservative? So there is a debate of like, what is, is being a moderate actually a politically meaningful term? Uh, and a lot of political scientists will tell you that moderates, just like their friends on the progressive side and the conservative side, also hold, can hold sort of extreme political positions. But I think a moderate oftentimes will not – they're not consistently moderate on every single issue, but they are able at sometimes to hold – some, you know, a handful of progressive issues and sort of a handful of conservative issues. And what happens, it, it really just washes itself out. And so I think about Hogan um, and the positioning over, over the years. And he has certainly taken a handful of sort of high profile conservative positions. But at the same time, um, he has taken a handful of, I think, a, you know, pretty socially uh, progressive or liberal positions. Let's talk about what some of those are. On the conservative side, early in his uh, tenure in the first term, um, he vetoed education bills. He vetoed uh, increases to Medicaid. These are, you know, uh, meat and potatoes issues for fiscal conservatives. He also vetoed um, the paid sick leave bill that was overridden. Um, What's interesting about that, and I mentioned this in the book as well, um, this was an example of Hogan's messaging ability. Um, And so before he vetoes that bill, before the General Assembly even passes it, they finally have the muster that this paid sick leave bill is going to get through. He catches wind of it, um, and he has a press conference before. And he introduces his piece of legislation um, that says, we're not going to do 50, we're going to do 15 as the size of businesses that will be required to provide paid sick leave. Now, the Maryland General Assembly, the Democrats... And that was the distinction, the number of employees in a business that would qualify for uh, having to provide paid sick leave. The key, that's the key distinction in the bill. And then he was able to come out and say, this is a more business-friendly compromise, a more moderate compromise. Now, the Democrats in the Maryland General Assembly were like, this is... No, this is not going to happen. What, what you're doing is it's a meaningless bill. If you only do 15, we're going to do 50. We're going to... Um, we're, we have the muster. We're going to push this... Uh, we're going to... Um, we're going to get this through. And they did. And Hogan vetoes it. And they, it's o- almost immediately overridden. Uh, so I think that's a sort of that's an example of the moderation, the fiscal conservatism, that sort of mix. 
think what he doesn't play up in his book, which I think is interesting, but I thought was uh, a meaningful moment in his uh, his time in office was uh, his support of removing the, the, the Justice Tawney statue from the State House grounds in the aftermath of Charlottesville. And this was an example to me, of, it was a high profile example that a lot of people remembered of the president of the United States at the time, Donald Trump, had just stumbled over this. Remember, he said there was good people on both sides at Charlottesville when there absolutely was not. Uh, and Hogan was able to, through the State House Trust, um, support the removal of the Tawny statue. He got a lot of blowback from the conser- uh, from conservatives and sort of Trump-aligned Republicans, but he did it anyway. Um, and he supported it anyway. Um, and that, I think, will end up being, I think, a, a part of his legacy where he made, um, I think, a, a smart decision, a good decision that's actually that will historians will look back um, with some favoritism. Yeah, he even uh, you write that he uh, led a bill that was uh, supportive of transgender rights uh, pass without a signature. That, that's right, and so he has, and that's another sort of key thing about Hogan's legacy. He made a promise early on that he wasn't really going to uh, do much with, so like, he wasn't going to interfere with social policy issues. Uh, and a lot of Democrats, I think, uh, criticize the governor. He has used this move a lot, the letting it go uh, into law without his signature if he doesn't feel like taking a position on a bill. But the the uh, the, the bill that allowed individuals to change their gender identity on their um, their driver's license and birth certificates, he let that go through without his signature, I think is an, just an example, a small example of just not wanting to wade in to the larger sort of cultural war um, issues. All right, so his philosophical uh, premise, uh, we've just had that conversation. When we come back from a quick break, we're going to talk about strategically uh, how masterful he's been at running campaigns. Dr. Malia Cromer is the director of the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics at Goucher College. Her new book is called Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won Where Republicans Lose and Lessons for a Future GOP. We'll have more with Dr. Malia Cromer after a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. On the 18th of January, Wes Moore will be inaugurated as the 63rd governor of Maryland. It is the first elective office he will hold, and he succeeds a governor who shared that level of experience when he was first elected in 2014. Larry Hogan had worked as an appointment secretary in the Ehrlich administration, and he had run for Congress twice, but he had never held elective office before he won his race against Democrat Anthony Brown. When Hogan won re-election in 2018, he became only the second Republican to do that in the history of our state. If you've just joined us, we're listening to a conversation I had last month with Dr. Malia Cromer, a pollster and the director of the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics at Goucher College. We're talking about her new book, Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won Where Republicans Lose and Lessons for a Future GOP. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we can't take any new calls or comments today. 
So let's talk about um, the strategic um, accomplishments of Larry Hogan. You mentioned Change Maryland. This was something that he started well before he ran for office. That really became the the breeding ground for his run for governor. Uh, what was Change Maryland? So Change Maryland um, was basically an anti-tax advocacy organization. And Hogan effectively used uh, Change Maryland. I don't know if it was the goal in the very, very beginning, but it eventually became a really effective platform for him. So nobody wants to talk to the guy who runs Hogan Companies, but they, uh, but people are willing to interview the person who is the head of an advocacy organization. And so he used this um, to sort of start to spread his message. Uh, I thought one of the kind of funnier parts of our interview was on a, when I asked him about sort of Change Maryland and Facebook, and this was, you know, a- after Obama had started to use social media effectively, uh, he was he seemed almost like this kind of like an influencer in the beginning. It's like couldn't believe that people were liking his posts. Uh, and I thought that was sort of, and that was I think a lot of people feel in the beginning. Um, but again, Change Maryland blew up eventually and it became a real platform. And eventually it started carrying the authority line for Hogan for governor. Um, what I think is interesting about how important Change Maryland was, and I think it speaks to the party organizations here in the state. Democrats have a robust party organization. There's been some problems over the couple, over the last couple of years, but they they still have the infrastructure to win elections. I don't think the Maryland Republican Party, especially in the state it is right now, um, or the state it really was back in 2000, you know, he was considering his first run in 2012 through 2014. They don't have the, the sort of infrastructure, I think, to to run and win statewide campaigns. So he built Change Maryland as a platform to be able to do so. And I think whoever runs uh, for Republicans in the future, the, the Change Maryland path would be a, certainly a smart move. He, you know, positioned himself in 2014, uh, and he was a real outlier and a uh, 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 a surprise uh, nominee to a certain extent. He was running against some some pretty established people, a former uh, county executive, um, but he positioned himself as I'm not a politician. And we should, by the way, mention you remind us that he ran for Congress when he was 24 years old mm-hmm. in 1981, lost in the primary, won the primary, and 11 years later, 1992, and lost to a guy named Steny Hoyer. And it came pretty close um, to to an upset win then as well. Um, so, so one more time. Repeat your question. Well, the 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 fact that that uh, he he has positioned himself as a non politician um, that seemed to be you know a, a winning a winning brand for him. Right, and I think that, you know positioning yourself as an outsider is certainly not a new brand. Um, he's the most, uh, in some ways, a, a very insider outsider, right? Because not only did he run for Congress, and um, his dad was a member of Congress, and he served in the Ehrlich administration as appointment secretary. Uh, he had some, I think, some experience. Um, but uh, one of the things he did in 2014 to win that primary, he was able, because of Change Maryland, because of that platform that he built, was able to raise some money. Um, and then the messaging really started and uh, that he was the most electable, that, you know, I'm not going to he didn't spend a lot of time uh, contrasting with the, the with David Craig, who was the Hartford County executive, who was the a lot of people thought would be is the person to beat. Didn't spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, he spent a lot of time telling reporters and uh, promoting the message that he was the most electable of the Repu- He could actually beat Anthony Brown. He was the most electable. And that stuck with like a lot of people. And he, had, he won that uh, primary pretty handedly. 
you you talk about how disciplined he is uh, when it comes to messaging. Um, I want to play a clip uh, of a very um, emotional, poignant moment in uh, the Hogan administration. This is uh, in um, this is a part of a press conference in which he announced to the world that he had been diagnosed with lymphoma. He had been diagnosed with a very aggressive, serious form of cancer. Um, uh, it, it was a it played a big role in the second uh, campaign for governor, uh, the 2018 election. Um, he handled this uh, with great dignity and with great strength. Uh, I think a lot of people, everybody, was uh, impressed at his, um, you know, the, the fact that he endured uh, these horrible treatments, chemotherapy treatments. Um, they worked, thank God. Uh, he's, you know, been re- in remission for a long time. But as he has just told the press, and he, he called a press conference, he didn't tell anybody what it was going to be about. Um, so the TV stations are there, and they say, okay, the governor's going to talk. We have no idea what he's going to talk about. And then he's got his family behind him, and he tells everybody he's been diagnosed with cancer. Um, and this is how he sort of uh, follows up that announcement. The best news is that my odds of uh, getting through this and beating this are much, much better uh, than the odds I had of beating Anthony Brown. <laughs> to become the 62nd governor of America. Uh, the odds uh, are uh, better than finally doing away with the rain tax mandate. The odds are better than uh, delivering tax relief for the families of Maryland. Uh, better than the odds of passing a budget that doesn't include tax hikes and reins in state spending. Uh, better than the odds of negotiating enhanced PMT regulations with both the agricultural community and the environmental community to help save our bay. Uh, Better than the odds of reducing tolls for the first time in 50 years. And uh, definitely better than the odds of actually having the Baltimore Sun name me as Marylander of the Year. (laughs) So this is Governor Larry Hogan. Uh, at the press conference in which he announced he had been diagnosed with cancer. I mean, that's an amazing moment. He he had been diagnosed just a few days before. He had been on a trip to Asia. He wasn't feeling well. All of a sudden he goes in, and these doctors are telling him he's got an aggressive form of cancer, and yet he he turns it into a, a political laundry list. It's very on brand for him. Um, you know, he has the whole state house press corps was assembled that day, and so he had an opportunity uh uh, to run through all the lists of his accomplishments at that point in time. And he took the opportunity to run through them that day yeah. um, in the midst of having, you know, announcing a really kind of a terrible diagnosis. That whole experience, I think, um, with cancer and the way that he publicly handled it. So you asked earlier in the program about like the Hogan as a person versus Hogan as a sort of political positioning. And so I think certainly Hogan as a person, um, a lot of folks looked at how he handled cancer. He was still going to work. He wasn't hiding behind press people. And he didn't look, I mean, I hate to say this, he didn't look great towards like the, you know, when he was really in the, the yeah, midst right. of the and chemotherapy. And anybody in the middle of chemo treatments, you know, is going to... And uh, he didn't hide himself from the public during that. And I think a lot of folks, anybody who's dealt with a family member who has went through the chemotherapy, and I have, so it is... 
it is, I think, it's really relatable to a lot of people. What kind of a boss is he? What kind of a, you know, behind the scenes, he comes off as, a, you know, this, uh, what's the, the, the phrase, hail fellow well met, sort of, you know, uh, in the public. But um, I understand from your book, he's, he can be tough to work for. He is apparently a pretty tough boss. Uh, so he's tough, to, he's tough, he's exacting. Uh, he wants things done succinctly and done correctly. Uh, he, If you notice, like the reason he is so prepared and it's hard for reporters and other folks to get him to stumble um, is because he's well-staffed and well-prepared. And that is a function of the way that he runs the governor's office, that that is just the modus operandum of the Hogan folks is to make sure that the principal is well-prepared all the time. And yeah, and I will say one note from some of the female um, staffers that I spoke to, and this was especially this is after the Cuomo stuff and in the Me Too era. Uh, there w- was certainly there was never sort of an indication that any sort of that was going on. That it was a uh, it was equal across uh, across gender lines. That he promoted women. Uh, that he, but he was just a tough boss across the board. His media strategy. I mean, uh, he, not only was he very well prepared for any encounters with the media, he had a lot of encounters, particularly during the COVID crisis, where he was giving you know regular updates because he, as was you know Governor Cuomo at the time in New York, etc. Um, uh, how would you describe it? Um, do you think it was effective? Yes, very effective. Um, really strategic. From I think. Just from the very beginning um, until, I mean, obviously the to the COVID-19 uh, issues. Now, the book, keep in mind, the book effectively ends before. I don't talk about any of the COVID-19 uh, press conferences or anything like that. I do use an example early on about the toll reductions. And I think that this, the, the way that they planned the toll reduction strategy is really indicative, I think, of how he handled press sort of throughout those time. And yeah, time this is office. when he announced he was going to reduce the tolls on the Bay Bridge and that kind of stuff. That's right. So he basically, um, so the 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 whole thing is he has this habit of sort of keeping things like sort of secret from the press and secret from Democrats uh, before he announces them. And he tries to announce them, I think, at strategic times that make it difficult for an opposition voice to get part of the media package. So if you understand the way the sort of flow of uh, TV works or the flow of the media works, if you can time things at certain parts of the day, it just makes it hard to get, you know, the, the packages typically do for a TV station on the, 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 the evening news. It's due by two or three in the afternoon. If you have your press conference at a strategic time, have a big announcement, a big rollout, it's hard to get an opposition voice, especially if the opposition doesn't know what you're doing beforehand. And I think that that was the example with the media rollout or the, the toll reduction was just that. Uh, it kept kind of really tight-lipped. Uh, the The Daily Record had caught caught wind of it. Brian Sears from the, the Daily Record had caught wind of it. Uh, they were ready to go with the story, but it was not until the sort of it was quickly ushered through and he was able to do it that everything kind of like was set in motion. And I picture and I talk about this that there's a one of the NBC affiliates from the DC region. I'm slipping my mind which what it's called. The exact name of the station is now. Uh, that the the reporter introduces it as like this is an inc- this is incredible he calls it about the toll reduction and the package included not a single opposition voice and folks were mad Democrats were mad that he cut these tolls because of the hit it takes to the budget yeah no no reporting about the revenue impact uh, he there was another example of uh, doing things uh, you know in a in a uh, singular way without involving Democrats and that has to do with his. Uh, closing the Baltimore jail here in Baltimore. Here's the announcement that he made about that. 
Oh, okay. Evidently, we don't have that clip, but we'll we'll uh, figure that out during the uh, during the break. But he the same thing. He didn't tell Democrats. He came to Baltimore and he makes this announcement that he's closing um, the the intake center. And and you know nobody knew anything about it. Not that people thought it was a terrible idea or a good idea. I mean, but people uh, this visit because he the, the other part of his brand is that he's working across the aisle. That he's, you know, uh, trying to find common sense solutions. I mean, we we hear those phrases uttered by him and and folks who work with him uh, all the time, but the the reality is a bit different. It's a it's a little bit more muddled in reality. Um, I think that certainly uh, he does work with Democrats on some issues, but he also takes the time when he wants to have a clear political win uh, that he will he will basically shut Democrats out. Now the Hogan folks will argue that the reason they have to do this is because they they are afraid that Democrats, on the other hand, would try to get in front of the issue or try to undermine the governor's announcement. So it's just so it's not as if not to paint like Hogan as just the only per, the only reason he's doing it is just to steal all the thunder. It's also a concern that Democrats will undermine sort of his uh, his big release. Yeah, we have an email from a listener, John, who says, as a liberal Democrat, I was unlikely ever to vote for Mr. Hogan. Even so, I've been consistently repelled by his evident hostility to the city of Baltimore. It's disloyal and unbecoming for any governor of Maryland to be so publicly dismissive of the state's most high-profile city. Um, they, I know when I talk to the folks in the, in the Hogan administration, and I've interviewed Governor Hogan just once in his eight years uh, here on this program, um, he takes umbrage uh, that he is anti-Baltimore. He says that, uh, you know, the fact that he uh, canceled the red line, et cetera, is not an in- indication that he's against the city. Um, but, boy, his relationships with Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, Jack Young, Brandon Scott, not so good. Um, how do you think he has handled uh, the perception of his uh, relationship to the city of Baltimore? That's probably the biggest knock on, um, I think, one of the bigger uh, knocks, you can say, on his sort of time in office is the relationship with Baltimore City. I will say that um, one of the things I thought a lot about when I was writing this book, um, and it dawned on me about halfway through the process, that I'm clearly writing this as somebody who lives in Baltimore City, that I didn't include... There's, I, I wonder how this book would be written or if, if it would be different if I was living in Montgomery County, if I was steeped in Montgomery County politics. And I wonder about the issues that we care about so much as Baltimoreans, and they seem so central to our lives and they're so important for us, how, how those issues sound to the large amount of voters who live in Prince George's and Montgomery County and other parts of the state. And so I think that part of the issue with Hogan and Baltimore City is also Baltimore City's declining power because of the, the population loss in terms of politics. And, you know, that's, a I think, a fair criticism often of the governor is that he perhaps hasn't paid enough attention to Baltimore City and its, and its problems. And it does, I think it comes through in the book to some extent. We, I, talk, I talk about the red line cancellation um, as well as, I think, uh, as well as the handling of the Baltimore uprising. Malia Cromer is the director of the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics at Goucher College. Her new book is called Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won Where Republicans Lose and Lessons for a Future GOP. We'll continue our conversation with Malia Cromer on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stick around. And 
Welcome back. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, it's an archive edition of Midday. We're listening to a conversation I had last month with Malia Cromer, a pollster and political scientist at the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics at Goucher College. She's written a book about Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican who has had great electoral success, which he may try to translate to the national stage with a run for president in 2024. Come January 18th, Mr. Hogan will have some time on his hands when Governor-elect Wes Moore is sworn into office. Mr. Hogan is expected to explore his chances of occupying the anti-Trump lane in the Republican nomination process. That could be a crowded lane, and with Trump voters still occupying a dominant place in the party, the more populated the let's move on wing of the GOP is, the better Trump's chances are to secure the nomination again. Malia Cromer's book explains how Hogan came to dominate Maryland politics. It's called Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won Where Republicans Lose and Lessons for a Future GOP. Our conversation was recorded earlier, so we aren't taking any new calls or online comments today. Here's more of my conversation with Dr. Malia Cromer. So, Malia, you write a lot about um, Governor Hogan's uh, relationship with Donald Trump, uh, which is uh, interesting in that he was one of the first people to come out uh, in opposition to Mr. Trump. And after the January 6th uh, insurrection, uh, he gave a press conference, and this is part of what he said. America would be better off if uh, the president would uh, resign or be removed from office and if Mike uh, Pence, Vice President of the United States, would uh, conduct a peaceful transition of power over the next 13 days until uh, President Biden is sworn in. Now, how the details of how, if that's going to happen or how that should happen, I don't know. He's very good friends with Mike Pence. Um, he's very good friends with Chris Christie. You'd write about how Chris Christie was instrumental in helping him get elected the first time. Um, uh, his relationship to Trump, this is really an extraordinary thing for him, for a Republican governor, to come out so strongly against Trump when we think about, you know, Kevin McCarthy, you know, putting his tail between his legs after January 6th and going to Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there's a, it's an incredible uh, dichotomy there. So I, I think, listen, Hogan's comments post-January 6th about Trump resigning or being removed from office are pretty consistent with the positions he's held um, on Trump throughout, effectively, since uh Trump descended that gilded uh, escalator uh, back in 2015. Uh, he's never support, not supported him during the primary, re refused to endorse uh, in the in the general election when he best uh, Hillary Clinton. Much like most of America, I think uh, Hogan was preparing for a Clinton presidency, and he was surprised uh, when Trump ultimately won. And the the conversation immediately turned in the state um, to not like Larry Hogan does he have coattails to immediately like, immediately will the Trump drag wash out basically uh, Hogan's chance at re-election? And I think for the folks surrounding Hogan, he uh, Trump became a, a pretty big threat, a threat that they had to sort of message around. They had to make sure that they didn't alienate the base completely because in Maryland, for a Republican to win statewide, you have to have full support from your base. You have to do really well among independents uh, in 50 to 60% of independents. And you have to get about a third of Democrats. Uh, Democrats 
liked it every single time that Hogan pushed back against the the, uh, the Trump administration. Uh, a lot of the Democrats I interviewed for the book said that they heard Democrats or uh, when they were out nor- dock- knocking doors, that people were saying it back to them. Like, we really like when Hogan pushes back. So this Trump be- presented, like, I think a really, really big problem for him throughout the campaign. It eventually turned into um, Democrats overreaching on the issue. And they were so convinced, I think, throughout 2018, if they could just tie Hogan to Trump, if they could just tie the two together, people would see, their de- their voters would see that Hogan was X, Y, and Z, who's just the same as Trump or this, that. Uh, and what happened was they forced people to look at the two men together, and about a third of Democrats um, walked away with this a perception that Hogan and Trump were two different people. And I think it actually bolstered uh, a lot of Hogan's sort of moderate credentials. And again, being a moderate, all the all the polling basically showed folks who viewed Hogan as a moderate were far more likely to want to reelect him in uh, 2018. And that's why those labels are so important. Yes. Because those who viewed him as a conservative were less likely to vote far for him. Far less likely. But if he can you know, position himself as a moderate, he gets a lot more support. So that's the danger, right? So for, for Ben Jealous in 2018, uh, he, he ran on, on the campaign that he was going to engage and bring all these new voters into the electorate. And he was also, I think going to demonstrate sort of like he was going to be an anti-Trump candidate and he was in uh, the campaign really did try to make an effort um, as well as Democrats in the in Maryland General Assembly to compare Hogan to Trump. And again, I, eventually it backfired. I, even the campaign, I asked the campaign, Hogan's campaign folks, like, when did you realize that the constant comparisons that folks were making between Trump and Hogan were starting to work in your favor? And they really can't, they, they even couldn't pinpoint exactly when. But it eventually did happen. The more and more that uh, Democrats sort of tried to point out like Hogan, Trump, Hogan, Trump, the the more and more people looked at it and then walked away with the idea that they were two completely different individuals. What do the results of this past gubernatorial election in which Dan Cox won the Republican nomination over Kelly Schultz, former Commerce Secretary, handpicked by Larry Hogan, uh, endorsed by Larry Hogan. Uh, what, what does it say about his coattails in Maryland? And what does that presage as a possible predictor for a national run? He's got to get through the primary if he wants to run against whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be. Well, I will say that um, the results of the 2022 election cycle certainly uh, support the notion that Trump Trump endorsed or Trump aligned Republicans will not win statewide in Maryland. Uh, can, uh, I think it was it's, up, it's and, in the 30s and a whole now. lot of other places and, too. And a whole lot of other places too. So in that aspect, Hogan's right. So his style, like his style of Republican candidate, is actually viable in a Maryland general election. Um, that being said, I took um, when I was interviewing sort of like the the last part of the book sort of focuses on like whether he actually has a chance of winning a actually being a serious contender in uh, 2024. So I purposely uh, identified a couple leading conservative um, uh, uh, media folks, uh, people write about politics who um, provide commentary, expert commentary. uh, And they are more, they were certainly more of the, they weren't like hardcore MAGA Trump people. Uh, And their, the walkaway message from every single one of them I talked to was we like Larry Hogan. Larry Hogan seems great. I w- uh, we wish the party looked more like him in a lot of ways, but the voters just aren't there yet. That the voters, um, that there's not going to be this sort of like, um, as, as McKay Coppins, uh, a writer for The Atlantic, described it, as her- a heroic moderate sort of riding in to save the GOP. Uh, and that was their general takeaway message as well, that 
it would be it's going to be really hard uh, for him to figure out a way, particularly if Trump's still in the race. But there are still everybody sort of said there's a narrow path if things could fall the right way. Politics is all about timing sometimes, you know, it's about timing, about events, about you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's it's a hard, it's and, an uphill battle. And the messaging that, you know, you talk a lot about uh, with Mr. Hogan and how disciplined he is about it, this messaging doesn't come by chance. Nope. This is this is done very, very professionally. Talk about uh, the person that Larry Hogan hired just to concentrate on women voters. So I think this is probably a really one of the more interesting functions of his campaign. So that being like, so the takeaway message, I think, number one, is that Hogan's folks are like highly disciplined. They're skilled. They understand exactly where the Maryland, Maryland voters are at. They do a lot of scientific polling. They took it a step further. Um, uh, Ashley O'Connor is a partner at Strategic Partners in Media, and she used to work with another woman. Her name is Christine Matthews, and they headed up a firm that was uh, a couple years ago that was specifically for trying to get more women to vote for the Republican Party. That was their bread and butter. So this woman, Christine Matthews, put together a panel of 100 or so uh, Maryland women uh, who who were Democrats or independents, who hated Trump but liked Hogan. And were undecided, basically. And the panel tracked the, these women and their attitudes throughout the entire course of the campaign. So they would check in with them every couple weeks. They would show them campaign ads. They would show them messaging and then ask for their reaction. Like, what did you see in the news this week? What did you care about? How are you feeling about the election now? And they just zeroed in on these women because they knew that these women were going to be the make or break decision. And or they, they, these are the women who mattered that they could actually sway the election for Hogan. If Hogan could um, close the gender gap, that he could almost certainly win. And so they focused on them. There was one time I think was really interesting that after the Brett Kavanaugh uh, nomination came, Hogan made uh, Hogan uh, decided that he said he, he thinks that there should be more hearings or wasn't ready to, uh, to weigh in either way. And they the Hogan campaign saw a drop in his numbers in the the number the head to head against Ben Jealous. And they were worried. They're like, this is it. They finally the Trump effect has finally caught up with yeah, us. The Achilles heel was there. It, yeah. It's here. Uh, and so they reconvened an emergency panel of these women because that would be the canary in the coal mine. Uh, and basically, the women were generally satisfied. They did not see Hogan as somebody like the Republicans who were supporting uh, Kavanaugh. They just we're not in, just we're not interested or not moved by it. And then lo and behold, they ran another poll and his numbers had ticked back up again. The guy loves polling and they as poll much as I do. A lot, yes, don't he, they? Yeah. He loves it as I much mean, as I throughout do. Throughout his time in office, he's polling. It's not just he it, doesn't poll. He do, it doesn't just poll when he's running for office. He polls on issues. He's interested in what the sort of average Marylander thinks. Uh, now, the, I think it's one of my favorite lines from the book. So the. Uh, Democrats will say this is what it looks like to govern by the polls. And Hogan's team will argue that this is what it's like to govern, that he cares about the will of the people, the average Maryland voter, uh, and that that these uh, scientific polling is used to inform uh, the things that, you know, the his policy positions and things that they're going to advocate for in, in terms of the state government. Is that a function of government? Who pays for these polls? Polls aren't cheap. No, I, I think a, I, a lot of a lot of it is probably paid for his. I would have to look at his campaign finance things. Um that I think most of that stuff is paid for by his campaign organization. Even while he's in office. I believe so, yeah. 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 Um, because, you know, you, you quote one Republican strategist who said, uh, you don't even have to do any opposition research on Larry Hogan. <laughs> the opposition research is he's not a team player. So that was um, Tim Miller. Um, uh, 
uh, Timmler, he writes for The Bulwark, and he headed up uh, in his younger years a, f- a firm who did exclusively opposition research for, re- for Republicans against Democrats. And so I asked him, I was like, well, if you're, Tim, if you're putting together a file on Hogan, if you were running against, against him in the primary, he's like, oh, it would just be easy. He just is not a team player. He'd, and in the hyperpolarized environment, not being a team player is a problem. He's like, and you could splice all the clips of him on CNN talking to Jake Tapper about, you know, complaining about Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Well, the book is uh, really fascinating and very revelatory in a lot of ways. And uh, so congratulations on it. It's re- I've learned a lot about Governor Larry Hogan and the political process and, and the political machinations that happen uh, way behind the scenes that we don't see or don't even think about all that much uh, from day to day. Um, if you had to guess, what what's Larry Hogan's future in, in two years? I mean, uh, people talked about... How he didn't choose to run for Senate is 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 any other elective office besides president uh, appealing to him? I don't think he. I, I would be surprised if he runs for Senate. He doesn't seem very interested in that at all. Um, but again, like going back to like the discipline messaging, like it's. I, I'm not a trained journalist. I tried as hard as I could to get this out of the out of him. He told me the same thing he told all the other national journalists that he's thinking about <laughs> it. Maybe he'll see. He's yeah. not sure. He's disciplined, that's for sure. Malia Cromer, the new book is called Blue State Republican, How Larry Hogan Won, Where Republicans Lose, and Lessons for a Future GOP. That's it for us today on this encore edition of Midday. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Have a great day.